According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here this morning for the purpose of growth. Good to be back. Appreciate uh, your grace in uh, allowing me to go to Kiev for the last couple of weeks. And appreciate even more grace uh, because I have one more trip coming up. Uh, so uh, next week I'm in Houston. And so that'll be that'll be the final affected Wednesday morning. So uh, no Wednesday morning class next week. We'll come back on uh, the 21st and uh, we'll be good for every Wednesday thereafter between uh, then and the rapture. I don't have no more further travel plans, I don't think, coming up at least until the fall. So give that to the Lord as well. All right, Matthew 26, also Mark 14, Luke 22. Um, it really doesn't matter which one you turn to. They're all <coughs> virtually identical in this respect. There's some slight vocabulary distinctions to be drawn. Um, there are a couple of tweaks that are unique in Luke that we'll spend some time looking at. But we'll start with Matthew 26 and uh, take a look at the communion service uh, here today. Before we do, we need to take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of doctrine, shall we pray. Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. We lift up uh, folks this morning that would want to be here uh, but cannot because of the circumstances and details, health or finances or work schedule or other things. Father, you, uh, you know the heart. You know the desire of the heart. We ask that you would reward that. Father, uh, thank you that we have the website available. Folks can uh, get caught up on content that they missed. We pray that you would arrange the circumstances and details that uh, those who want to be here can be here at the next available opportunity. Father, thank you for safe travels, the completed missionary work in uh, Ukraine and Look forward to uh, this evening and giving a full report to the congregation. And, uh, and in all things, Father, we just rejoice that this is all made possible because your Son is the faithful one. Your Son is the one accomplishing your good pleasure in this present evil age. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, episode 22 in Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem. Episode 22 is the institution of the Lord's Supper. We are still in the midst of the upper room. Uh, several of these episodes all take place in the same location. Uh, it'll be very quickly, though, after this that they will finish communion. They will then sing a hymn and then they will depart. And then uh, he will have a speaking, a, a talking ministry while walking, talking and walking. And uh, they will be en route to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in that uh, ministry, about a 15 minute walk, that uh, that he is going to communicate the content of John chapters 14, 15, 16 and offer up the prayer that he offers in John 17. So all these things to look forward to. Let's uh, read verses 26 through 29. It's just four verses. Likewise, in Mark, it's four verses. In Luke, it's four verses. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this, of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." And then after uh, singing a hymn, they went out of the Mount of Olives. We've actually already covered verses 31 and following because this is the passage we looked at in episode 21 where Jesus was warning of further desertion. And uh, so there's um, a little bit of an order question that we discussed when we harmonize all four Gospels. We're basically using uh, Matthew and Mark are preferable to Luke in this upper room. And uh, John is uh, preferable to Matthew and Mark in this upper room. And so that's the uh, system we're using to, uh, to harmonize the upper room sequence of events. Well, pretty straightforward. And we do communion every month. So this ought to be the easiest Bible class to, uh, to teach. Uh, in fact, uh, you ought to be able to get up here and teach it yourself. Um, what, uh, you, know, you don't have to be a genius theologian to figure out what the bread's about. Uh, he tells us right there, this is my body. And uh, likewise, uh, I don't have to 
make up something or, or try to demonstrate how, how brilliant I am by coming up with a creative explanation on the cup. Uh, I just have to look right there and say, oh, look at that. This is the blood of the covenant. Okay, got it. Uh, amazing, though, how throughout all 2,000 years of church history, we've had such arguments over, uh, well, what exactly do you mean this is my body? What exactly do you mean this is my blood? And, uh, you know, uh, how uh, between the, the Catholics and the Lutherans and their transubstantiation and consubstantiation and then um, uh, Calvin and his spiritual presence understanding of it and then uh, how we approach it in, in our understanding uh, in, in uh, the memorial uh, strictly limiting it to memorial. The substance itself has not changed. Uh, Jesus is uh, no more present in the uh, elements than, uh, than he's present in that chair, for example. Uh, Jesus, of course, is omnipresent, so wherever we are, he's there, and we, uh, we identify with that. But it is designed as a memorial. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And so eating is a command. Likewise, drinking is a command. He says, drink from it, all of you. And uh, that is a command um, as far as that goes. Now, nothing in Matthew gives us a glimmer that it is to be repeated again uh, or that it is to become a custom or a practice in, uh, in coming days. Not until the church is unveiled uh, is it then revealed to the apostles that this uh, ritual is to be repeated as a permanent ordinance for the church. Let's get over to Mark 14 and see. Spot uh, anything that might be different there. Mark 14 should be largely identical to what we just read. Luke is the one that has a few different details. But Mark 14, verses 22 through 25. Again, it has uh, the uh, exposure of the traitor and then the Lord's table. Uh, neither Matthew or Mark actually stipulate that the traitor departed. And so it's left kind of interesting here. He says, one of you will betray me and, and uh, one who is eating with me in verse 18. But there's no clue that he actually leaves the room at any time. Uh, verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. So the language is identical in both cases, my body, my blood. But with respect to blood, he adds the terms of the covenant. So we've got to uh, understand what this is dealing with. My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So identical language. He is not going to partake of any cup of wine. Until, uh, until he is seated on his Davidic throne. After, again, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is why I say on Sunday mornings, the last thing we do is not to pass a plate. The last thing we do is to sing a hymn. And we sing a hymn and we depart. And we don't go out to the Mount of Olives, but we, we go out of where we are. And that's kind of our, our tradition there. And uh, likewise, just as in the order of events with Matthew, it is having uh, going out to the Mount of Olives that he warns them about falling away and Peter says, oh, no, I won't do it, and so forth, as they uh, are on their way to Gethsemane. All right, Luke 22 then. And this is the one that has slightly different details. It has a cup, then the bread, then another cup. And that bothers a lot of people until you understand the full um, background, the Seder uh, feast, the background related to Passover, and as it was observed in that day, and as it was observed in the centuries following, we'll discuss that. There were actually four cups total in the, uh, in the Jewish Passover uh, evening. And uh, the only debate is, so I'm not surprised to see a second cup here uh, in, in Luke's record. Um, we, we wouldn't be surprised to see a third cup or a fourth cup in Luke's record. Uh, the only thing that would surprise us is if we had more than four cups, then we would try to figure out why they were getting drunk. <laughs> but there are four cups in the Seder feast. And, uh, and as it is, I don't believe Jesus even drank from the final cup because he says he's not going to until he's uh, seated on David's throne. In Luke 22, you'll note um, these verses 17 through 20 are in a slightly different order. Uh, Luke actually records the communion prior to the um, announcement of the traitor. And that's why I say we prefer Matthew and Mark's sequence to Luke's sequence. 
And then we use John's sequence to pinpoint when the, when the trader departs, when the door is closed, and when the eleven are left um, with, with our Savior. So uh, verse um, 14, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Play on words there, of course, because the word to suffer is, is connected to the word for Passover itself. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's never going to partake of, of Passover again and he's ne- until the millennial kingdom, and, and neither will he consume a, uh, an alcoholic beverage until the kingdom of heaven. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what's different here in this language is uh, not only does he take the bread and say, Eat this, this is my body, but he says, Do this in remembrance of me. That he gives the indication that they are to do this not only tonight, but in the future, this will be their remembrance. This is going to be their memorial. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, uh, saying, the, this cup, notice, which is poured out for you. I don't believe he drank from this final cup. They drank from it. I don't believe he drank from it. I believe he got it back from them, they having drunk from it, and then he poured it out. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Again, it's my blood and it's covenant. And the language is new covenant specific to this gospel record. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. And it goes on to describe that. Luke's, if, if Luke's sequence is correct, it's interesting because then that would have the unbeliever here present participating in communion. You understand? And I, I don't think that's uh, correct. I believe that Matthew and Mark have the better sequence, the better order on it, and, uh, and so forth. Now, uh, we have the episodes there. Now, John does not record this event. John records uh, Satan indwelling uh, Judas. John records uh, Jesus and his words to Judas, what you do to quickly. Uh, John records uh, Satan's and Judas's departure and the door closing and, uh, and everything that we studied in, in the recent uh, classes in episode 20 and 21. Um, the synoptics don't record that, but John does. John does not record the communion. And so that's why I say we have to really put all four of these together to get the best sequence, the best order of events. All right. Now, if we wanted a fourth record, where would we turn? Corinthians. That's right. First Corinthians 11. And uh, we might as well, since we're still introducing here, kind of in a reading mode. So hold your finger here in Luke or not your choice. Let's get to first Corinthians 11. And we'll notice. As the Lord said, uh, do this in remembrance of me, uh, hinting that, uh, this Thursday night, April 2nd, may not be the only time the disciples are expected to, to uh, partake of this ritual. Jesus, by the way, is not adding to Passover. Jesus is, is giving something new. Like uh, we saw in John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And uh, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. And so he is introducing, uh, even though the church is mystery, the church is not unveiled to Pentecost, still he is preparing these uh, disciples for what they're going to be dealing with after the church begins. So 1 Corinthians 11, um, Paul says, I receive, verse 23. And you'll note that this comes in the midst of a chapter where he is rebuking them that they are, uh, they have schisms in the church, and one of the things that they're doing terribly is that they are um, turning their agape feast, their love feast, into a, a terrible demonstration of wealth for those who can afford to feast, while others uh, are struggling to put food on the table and uh, showing up without uh, without a whole lot to eat from there. So verse 17, he says, In giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. When the, uh, when the assembly is assembled, it's supposed to be for the better. You know, we are here congregating. We are a congregation and we want this congregation today to be for the better, not for the worse. And he says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you and in part I believe it. 
For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There's actually a benefit to um, to schisms when they arise. It's sad when they do. But when they do, uh, there can be fruit born from it. There, and it's an opportunity for the faithful ones to learn from the faithless ones when the, uh, when the departure takes place. He says in verse 20, uh, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. That they have these gatherings and they've turned them into Corinthian feasts, which are not what God would have for born-again believers. And uh, including a lot of food, a lot of drinking, a lot of wine, a lot of women, uh, provided, of course, uh, they're readily in Corinth and uh, things of that nature. He says, what? Verse 22, do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? You can stuff yourselves at home. When you're assembled, it's for a different purpose. Communion is supposed to be for something different. And they found that, well, hey, let's just combine our potlucks with our communion service. All right. Now, there's nothing wrong with potlucks. We have potlucks. You can have whatever fellowships you want to have. Um, but don't, uh, don't use them to shame your brothers and sisters. Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. Benefit of, uh, hey, Doug, benefit of uh, the uh, potluck format is that we all bring what we bring and then we share what we share. And uh, we're not, that's not what they were doing, though. Uh, some rich folks were bringing and filling their tables and just feasting and then laughing at the, the poor folks the next table over that, you know, brought their sack lunch and their peanut butter sandwich. And uh, <laughs> so there it is. All right. Then verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the language here is very much compatible with the Luke record. And you might expect that because Luke traveled with Paul and and uh, so forth. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Again, language reflective of Luke. Um, different from Luke, though, in, in the gospel record of Luke, the, the do this is not uh, in remembrance of me is not stated in the cup. It's only stated in the bread when you uh, look closely at Luke 22. But it is stated here. Um, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, this is according to the gospel record, according to what was revealed from the Lord. Did he get this from man? Did he get this from Luke? No. Verse 23 says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Jesus Christ himself gave him this doctrine. Jesus Christ himself gave him this doctrine, highlighting that this is supposed to be a ritual for the, the church age. Notice verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we'll have a point of study out of that verse right there that will highlight the nature of why we observe communion uh, on a periodic basis. We observe it at an interval of some sort that, that has regularity to it, that has um, significance to it. And uh, we're delighted to have fellowship this way. Uh, this is fellowship with the Lord. And... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll discuss this as well in the context of how it's either the cup of the Lord or it's the cup of demons. It's either the table of the Lord or the table of demons. And if we neglect this table, what are we in danger of uh, partaking in? You understand. All right. Let me return to Matthew then. I think I'll spend the bulk of my time there. Matthew 26. Again, this is not a change to the Passover service. Jesus says he's not going to participate in Passover until the kingdom. But he does give them a bread and, and cup ritual, and they're expected to participate in that again and again and again until the Lord comes. Communion ends with the rapture, you understand. It will not be a feature of the tribulation, will not be a feature of the millennial kingdom. Communion is only for the bride of Christ. I'm going to show you why. Uh, by the time we work our way through 
this particular study. Now, point one. Bread and wine were both features of the Jewish Passover. The bread had to be unleavened. Uh, there, were, there were additional features as well, bitter herbs and some other things. Uh, of course, a lamb, Passover lamb. There were a lot of features of Passover that are not part of communion. Bread and wine were features of the Jewish Passover, but Jesus gave his disciples a new insight. This is brand new stuff. Unless, of course, Melchizedek and Abraham took communion in Genesis 14. <laughs> All right. And that's, uh, that's another extraordinary concept. Bread and wine were features of the Jewish Passover, but Jesus gave his disciples a new insight applicable to the dispensation of the church and commanded for church observance. Commanded for church observance. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this. Keep on doing this. Repeatedly do this. As often as you do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Alright. So bread and wine were features of the Jewish Passover, but Jesus gave His disciples a new insight. A new level of comprehension. Entirely new concepts to, uh, to relate to looking back in a completed work. Passover itself was a picture looking forward to the cross. Uh, it was unleavened bread, of course, just like communion is unleavened bread. Uh, Passover included the death of an animal because that was looking forward. Our ritual looking backward does not have the death of an animal. Our ritual looking backward simply has the bread and the wine. All right. But the ritual looking forward has the death of an animal. That's going to be significant. We'll discuss that. Why is it that with the death of Christ, there's no more death of the animal? We have a new insight applicable to the dispensation of the church and commanded for church observance. Now, you understand, church is still mystery. Jesus is not unveiling mystery prior to Pentecost. Same thing we discussed in John 13 when he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. All right? They, hadn't, they didn't understand anything he told them on this night until Pentecost. Then afterwards, with the filling of the Holy Spirit, they're able to reflect back on the upper room discourse, on the content of what he gives them in John 13 through 17. Only with hindsight and the Holy Spirit in the church age can they go back to John 13 through 17 and realize that that content he was giving them was prophetic, looking forward to the coming church age. All right, does that make sense? hope we understand that. Some people uh, reject that. They say, oh no, it's before Pentecost. It has to be for Israel. can't be for the church. And I think that's, uh, in, in general, they're right. If it's in the Gospels, it's not for the church. Except when, specifically, we got reasons from the text to say, you know what, this is not for Israel. This has to apply to the church. And I believe in John 13 through 17, we have those reasons. Text-based reasons for handling the text that way. All right, now under this, quite simply, the, uh, the elements ought to be clear. The bread is the body of Christ. The bread is the body of Christ. And you say, well, how is it the body of Christ? I, I get that it is, but how is it? The Catholics would tell you that due to the um, magic powers that their priesthood has, all right, that if, if a, a Catholic priest with the proper ordination in the proper Catholic way and the proper line of succession with apostolic succession, that a Catholic priest can uh, produce the, uh, the right ritual, the right prayers, the right mumbo-jumbo to actually turn the, the elements into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. All right? and that's their doctrine of transubstantiation. And they, uh, they, they go through this and they actually do it. The Orthodox Church claims the same thing. Orthodox Church even adds a little bit to their ritual because they, uh, they build a, uh, a veil at the front of their uh, at the front of their chapels, and the priest actually takes the elements and goes within the veil, and uh, in the holy of holies, as it were, and does the mumbo jumbo with the incense and the prayers and the stuff. Comes back out, and once he's out, then it's uh, officially the body of Christ and the blood of Christ at that point. Um, 
Lutheran position is, well, nothing actually physically transforms or remains bread and wine, but uh, in their concept of consubstantiation, that the essence of Christ is vested in the elements. And so uh, the elements themselves remain what they are, but uh, the essence of Christ is in the elements. And then the, the Calvinist view is that, well, no, but Christ is in the elements spiritually, not his essence, but in a spiritual presence. And slight tweaking of the Lutheran view, distinctions between the Lutheran and the Calvinist views. But Jesus says the bread is his body and he still has his body when he says the bread is his body. And so most folks with the literal hermeneutic understand that uh, this is in a memorial way, that this is uh, a metaphor. And it's a metaphor that he's used before. He used it in John chapter 6 when he fed the 5,000. And he talked about the bread of heaven, not the manna that that Moses provided, but him. And he told them, and we're going to spend some time in John 6 today to remind us that this is not the first time that Jesus has given bread and wine language and eating and drinking applications for for, uh, the disciples. So the bread is the body of Christ. And that's why, of course, we use unleavened bread to paint that picture. The cup, or specifically the wine in the cup, is the blood of Christ. The wine is the blood of Christ. Again, it's a symbol. It's a representative metaphor. It's not his literal blood. His hemoglobin is still flowing in his arteries and in his veins. And regardless, it's not the hemoglobin anyway that redeems us. We understand that. So we have his physical perfection and we have his spiritual death on the cross. And they're portrayed by the, the bread and the cup. The cup is the blood of Christ. So we've got the body of Christ, we have the blood of Christ. References for the body include Matthew twenty six, twenty six, Mark fourteen, twenty two, Luke twenty two, nineteen. For the blood of Christ as the cup, it's Matthew twenty six, twenty eight, Mark fourteen, twenty four, Luke twenty two, twenty. And all three gospels are unanimous on this, and and uh first Corinthians eleven is in agreement with this so we understand the metaphor it's a picture we're we're to partake in remembrance all right everything jesus said was do this in remembrance of me paul says we do this in remembrance but also as often as you do this you proclaim the lord's death until he comes we're not only remembering we're also proclaiming we have work to do as his heralds as his ambassadors as his bride that's something we're going to have to understand as well. All right. So what is the eating and drinking? Point C. Eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. Eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. John 6, verses 26 through 58. And believing in Christ is the only means by which the work of Christ is applied to us. Believing in Christ is the only means by which the work of Christ is applied to us. Now, if we fail to believe, it, doesn't, it does nothing whatsoever to affect the work Jesus did. The work Jesus did is, remains the work Jesus did, whether we eat or not, or whether we believe or not. Our faithlessness does not nullify the promises of God. You understand, we saw this in Romans. But the only means by which that unchanging eternal work, that infinite work, actually is applied to our account is when we believe. Is when we eat the bread and drink the cup. The moment of our salvation I'm talking about now. Okay. So eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. And every time we partake in communion, what are we testifying to? That we're saved. Yeah. That we have eaten of the bread of life that we have drunk that wine that we have become partakers of his shed blood become partakers of his sacrificial work of atonement on the cross so uh, is there is there actual value in uh, taking communion does it save us are we more saved when we take communion no are we less saved if we don't take communion no same thing with water baptism We're not more saved if we do the ritual. The ritual is a reflection of the reality. It is a public testimony. So, let's flip over to John 6 and take a look at this. 
I think uh, we can avoid the confusion if we maintain appropriate distinctions between the ritual and the reality. We understand one is a picture of the other, and we don't want to miss the point of the reality by getting lost in the ritual. And we never want to think that the ritual has value other than to remind us of the, of the reality. Now, uh, in the early part of John chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000. And then uh, they're all amazed. They're dazzled. Uh, in verse 14, they're well fed. And uh, they say this is truly the prophet who was to come into the world. And uh, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him their king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. And uh, they want to make him their king all for the wrong reasons. They want him to be the king because he can feed their bellies. And so he uh, throws them off the track. He sends the disciples away in a boat. And then he uh, walks across the water to get caught up with them. And the, the crowds, uh, you know, this is a good way to, to lose your, your pursuers. Uh, you know, they see, they see the boat's going away without him. And then in the morning he's gone. Well, where could he have gone? We know he wasn't in the boats. Well, he walked across the water and that was designed to throw him off the uh, <laughs> throw him off the, the track, as it were. But they uh, they're bewildered and, and and they see that he didn't get in the boats, but he wasn't there, and so they try to figure out. So finally, then they go across to the other side. They come to Capernaum and they find him, and they say to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And he says, You're not here because I'm the Christ. You're not responding in faith to the signs that you observed. You're here because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You're here because you got a full belly. And that's just the selfish, carnal, human thing. You know, um, elections will be won by people that say, well, you know, I'll feed your belly. Give you what you want. Somebody else will pay for it. <laughs> All right. Hey, free bread. I don't have to work for it. You know, just give it to me. Isn't that great? He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him the Father God has set His seal. Understand your priorities. Temporal life versus eternal life. You've got to have your eternal life uh, organized first. What's the, what's, the, what's the value if you have all the temporal life success in the world, but you're not saved? So therefore they said to Him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. You want to know what you can do to do God's work? Get saved. And people that want to work for their salvation, Jesus says, okay, you want to work for it? Here's how you work for it. Don't work. Believe. This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. You want to call that a work? Call it a work. But it's not a work. Romans says it's not a work. To Him who does not work but believes. It is is by, by grace through faith. So if you want to call it a work, call it a work, but it's not. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, what then do you do for a sign that we may see, that we may believe you? What work do you perform? Now, you realize this is, this is totally disingenuous. They had seen the sign last night. They don't need an attesting miracle to believe that he is a prophet sent from God. They even said, he, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the fulfillment of, of, of you know, Deuteronomy. All right. Was it Deuteronomy 18, I think, when Moses said the Lord would lift up a prophet like unto me? Okay. So they've already seen the sign. They know he's sent from heaven. They know that he's got a divine message. They don't need another one in order to trust what it is that he's communicating. And yet they want one anyway. And they're helpful enough to suggest one that he could do. Okay. Uh, What sign do you do? Uh, They don't want him to walk on water again. They don't want them to, uh, you know, heal or raise somebody from the dead. They want another meal is what they want. What, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. That'd be a real good sign. Why don't you do that again? And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. What Moses gave them for their wilderness wanderings was, was a picture of the reality. Don't confuse the picture with the reality. See, they're making the same mistake I'm trying to warn us about today, that we don't confuse the picture with the reality. That communion has to have significance as it paints that picture. 
For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Manna didn't do that. Manna was just earthly sustenance to sustain them for one more day. So they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So now here's, again, metaphor. He's the bread. When he teaches the communion table, he says, my body. This is the bread, me, my body. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Now here's where we start to see the definitions for the metaphor. The uh, imperative here is, or the uh, expectation here is coming to Christ. Coming to Christ. Now I know Calvinists and some other folks don't like that phrase, coming to Christ. And they say, well, nobody comes to Christ. Christ comes to us. Okay, fine, I get that. But the expression is still used. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Coming to Christ. He says, come unto me. Um, come by without money, without cost. The, the invitation is come. Whosoever will may come. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And notice, he who believes in me will never thirst. So coming and believing are synonyms. You see that? Coming and believing are interchangeable. When you believe in Christ, you've come to Christ. Now, did He come to you first? Of course. The Holy Spirit was convicting you. The Father was drawing you. Your, uh, your heart was moved so that you responded to the Gospel. All of that was done in, in, in common grace leading up to your moment of salvation. But you still placed your faith in that which you were persuaded. He persuaded you, but you trusted in, in that which He persuaded. And so when you believe, you come. And these aren't my terms. These are the Lord's terms right here. So coming equals believing. So he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so whether it's eating the bread or it's drinking the cup, the result is forever. See, what, what part of never do you struggle with? Never thirst. Ever, ever again. Jesus told the woman of the well that too. He says, the water that I give Drink of this and you never thirst again. These are, um, you know, uh, strong indicators related to internal security as well. How do you lose your salvation? If you lose your salvation, does that mean you start thirsting again? Well, this says you'll never thirst again. That means you can't lose it. But I say to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. The issue is faith and they had a lack of faith. They were not approaching on the basis of faith. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with a, a Calvinist debate or some other person that says, well, nobody ever comes to Jesus, say, sure they do. Everybody that the Father gives to the Son comes to Jesus. And if they say, well, that's not true, then ask for a magic marker and tell them you've got a verse in the Bible you want to blot out for them because they obviously don't believe God's Word. God's word here says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. More uh, reinforcement there on eternal security. All right. Uh, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's here to do the will of the Father. And that is to receive everybody the Father gives him and to not cast out even one. You understand that? If you lose your salvation, you know what that means? That means Jesus Christ disobeyed God the Father. That means Jesus Christ lost one, and the Father said, don't lose any. So, uh, to me, the idea of Jesus disobeying the Father is so unthinkable that losing salvation ought to be just as unthinkable. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all He has given me, I lose not one thing, but raise it up on the last day. Any Arminian has to believe that Jesus Christ is going to defy the will of the Father. They usually say, well, they didn't truly come to Jesus. They weren't saved really in the first place. The Calvinists will say that. The Arminians will say, well, they were saved, but they lost it. They stopped believing. All right. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. From that moment on, you have it. You're not waiting to get to heaven to have eternal life. You have it from the moment you believe. And Jesus will raise you up. You can never lose it. You are guaranteed to be raised up. 
Now, again, let's take a look and make sure we're not losing track of the metaphor. You understand this is a metaphor. The Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Because who does he think he is? <laughs> How can he be the bread coming down out of heaven? What's he talking about? Is, he, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? We know his family. We know his hometown. We know his background. How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? What does he think he is? Where does he think he's coming from? We know where he's coming from. You know, the same mockers will happen today. Who does this guy think he is? Where'd he go to seminary? Where's his degree? Kind of a thing. He didn't go to a real seminary. He doesn't know what he's doing. So Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. All right? So this whole thing, before the Father gives us to the Son, the Father has already drawn us to himself. The Father has already done the work of grace that it takes in order for us to be in a position where we can freely uh, respond to the gospel, either rejecting it or accepting it. Part of the common grace that precedes our salvation. The Father draws. And I will raise him up on the last day. All right. Um, but again, how do, I, how do I make this applicable? How do I, how do I make this happen? Well... Verse 45, as it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. All right, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Again, what did we say? Eating and drinking are metaphors. Eating equals eating the bread equals coming to Christ equals believing. And here again, again, we see faith in verse 47. He who believes has eternal life. That's the reality. If the, if the metaphor causes you to stumble, then chuck it, okay? But embrace the reality. Understand the reality. It's believing in Christ. I am the bread of life. He goes on, you know, they, they were idolizing Moses. To them, Moses was everything. And Jesus is saying, yeah, what about that bread Moses gave them? Everybody that ate that bread, they're dead. Every last one. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. <laughs> it sustained them till the next day they had to go get some more. And the next day they went and got some more. And when they entered into the land, the manna stopped. It served its purpose. So manna doesn't provide eternal life. But this bread does. Jesus does. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. When you get saved, you have eternal life. You never lose that. I am the living bread. It came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is, notice now, not my blood, my flesh. My flesh. That's why in the communion table he says, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Huh. Well, now they're really going to argue. <laughs> the Jews began to argue with one another. So they didn't like it. They were grumbling in verse 41. Now they're arguing in verse 52. You see the progression? And I find it interesting. What's, what's Jesus going to do now? Is he going to back off? Is he going to say, oh, I see you're having a hard time accepting my message. I'll, let me sugarcoat it for you. Let me find a way to make it culturally relevant. Let me, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's try to have a softer, kinder approach that won't uh, offend anybody. Maybe uh, we can, maybe we can perform an interpretive dance, or uh, a tase meditation thing. No, Jesus doesn't go to any phony garbage like that. All right, and he doesn't compromise, and he doesn't soften his language. You want to know what he does? He makes it even worse. He ratchets it up. He says, "You're rejecting truth, and truth hurts." And if they can't handle eating flesh, he says, "Well, guess what?" Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. How do you like me now? <laughs> okay. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we get this because we understand. And I don't... 
you know, I don't blame them for not getting it. They weren't saved. What are they supposed to get? And they were hostile. They were prideful. They were arrogant. You can't learn the word of God that way. It is interesting, though. Muslims pick up on this. They accuse us of being cannibals. You know, they, they call Christians cannibals and Christ eaters and different things. Which, if the Catholics are right and they're physically transforming the elements into the body and blood of Christ, I guess we, they would be cannibals at that point. Kind of gruesome. All right. Now, don't confuse the metaphor. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So, when you look at verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And you look at verse 47, he who believes has eternal life. You see how this connects? Eating and drinking is a metaphor, it equals believing. It equals coming to Jesus. It equals getting saved. And so every time, every Sunday, the second Sunday of the month, every time we take communion, those who partake, are they getting saved all over again? No. But they are publicly testifying that they are saved ones. You and I partake. We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We belong to Him. We are partakers in Christ, looking forward to the coming kingdom keeping in our focus what He kept in His focus. Understanding our role. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now this, was, uh, this was revolutionary. This, no, no Jew under Mosaic law with an Old Testament theology would have any clue about the abiding presence. They could understand, like the psalmist in Psalm 119, they could understand abiding in the Word of God. They could understand meditating on His statutes day and night. But God actually coming in and making a dwelling within us? You know, closest they had a framework for that was when the Shekinah glory dwelt among their people in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And then, you know, they, they, Israel said, hey, we're the chosen people. God lives in our capital in a holy of holies that one guy can go into one day a year. That was their proximity and intimacy with God the Father. Ours, though, is eternal. Internal and eternal. Abides in me and I in Him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. He who eats this bread will live forever. Alright, so eating and drinking are metaphors for faith. We see this in John 6, verses 26-58. through 58. And believing in Christ is the only means by which the work of Christ is applied to us. The work of Christ is applied to us. That application becomes, in my mind, the um, significance of to uh, how it is that you can have an unconditional atonement with a particular redemption. All right, The fact that Christ died for all, but not all get saved. That you have an unconditional atonement that has value for everybody, but only applied in a very limited scope to those who believe, those who accept. All right? So believing in Christ is the only means by which the work of Christ is applied to us. Now, if you think about it, is this any different than Passover related to the necessity for faith to be applied? The concept actually was also a feature of Passover. The death of the lamb was not sufficient for the angel of death to spare the firstborn son. The blood had to be applied to the doorpost and to the lintel over top of the doorpost, right? So the death made it possible to apply blood, but the death did not make effective the, the, the process there by which the salvation occurred that night. The blood had to be applied. Likewise, the death of Christ on the cross, we can say, if you think about it this way, doesn't save anybody until that blood is applied. Okay. Now, we can receive that application individually and receive our eternal life through uh, personal faith. And, and we all have passed that moment. I believe everybody in this room is personally born again. So we all have that as a, as a point of time in our past. Um, 
but something to think about and something we're going to start to address next week is are there additional applications of the blood of Christ beyond personal application for an individual receiving salvation? The blood was applied to a lot of things in the Old Testament. It was applied to people, but it was also applied to altars. It was applied to uh, furnishings. It was applied to the tabernacle. The, uh, The items had to be cleansed. The people had to be sanctified. There was a personal application of blood, and there was a corporate application of blood. And I think much of the confusion that comes, particularly with the New Covenant, is failing to identify the corporate application of the blood and how the blood of Christ is for the redemption of Israel as a corporate nation upon this earth and how that blood has to be applied to Israel for Israel to be the covenant nation on the millennial, in the millennial kingdom. And that is totally ignored. Even, even by Christians who are not replacement theology people, even Christians that have good theology and they're dispensational, they still fail to identify that there is a significant corporate application of the blood of Christ that relates to Israel in the millennial kingdom that has nothing to do with, with an individual getting saved. All right? And that's what we have to focus on or the full understanding of, of this night is, uh, is not going to be clear to us. Okay? Because the full understanding of this night has to deal with Israel. That's why he connected it to Passover. Could he have given them communion on Palm Monday? Sure. He could have given them communion at any point in his earthly ministry. He could have given them communion on the, on the mountain when he fed the 5,000. But he gave them communion on the night in which he was betrayed. He gave them communion as an extension of Passover. All right? And that's why we've got to understand the doctrine and how it relates to Israel. Passover relates to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Communion is going to relate to Israel when he brings them into the millennial kingdom. All right? And it's not going to feature another lamb. It's going to feature bread and wine, but it's going to feature that application by faith. Because all Israel got brought out of Egypt whether they were saved or not. But not all Israel will get into the millennium whether saved or not. Only believers get into the millennial kingdom. So we've got a lot of work to do ahead of us, okay? And uh looks like, uh, well, let's see how far we get with this. Um, point two. I recommend Arnold Fruchtenbaum. There may be other authors that you're fond of. Arnold Fruchtenbaum wrote a Passover Haggadah, um, basically a traditional Passover uh, Seder feast for us to learn from, the traditions. Uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Passover Haggadah is helpful in appreciating the Jewish background and practices for the Passover meal. In fact, I'll read a selection from it here in our six minutes remaining, and and, uh, I'll read a selection from it next week when we come back to this. uh, It is available in the Arnold Fruchtenbaum collection uh, for Logos Bible Software. Uh, It's probably also on Ariel Ministries' website, Many of their PDFs are free. Some of them have a nominal fee attached to them. If you want to order it at uh, Amazon.com, I even got an ISBN number for you. 0-914-863-04-05. So point two in the outline, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's Passover Haggadah is helpful in appreciating the Jewish background and practices for the Passover meal. This is where we learn about that second cup and and the third cup and the fourth cup and why we're not shocked that Luke would discuss a cup followed by bread followed by another cup. The real debate at this point is um, the two cups Luke mentioned, were they the second and third or were they the third and fourth? I think they were the third and fourth. I think. I'll reread Arnold and change my opinion. All right. And we, years ago... And it's been too long. We need to have another one. Years ago, we had a demonstration. And uh, I know it was years ago because my firstborn was a four-year-old. All right. Now he's pushing 20. So it's been a while. Okay. I remember because when he ate the horseradish, he turned brighter red than the maroon on these chairs. His face looked like Sid's shirt after the, uh, after the horseradish. And what we had when Arnold came, when, when Dr. Fruchtenbaum was here, he, um, he did a demonstration. So we kind of sat there and watched, and he had everything all up front. 
on a demonstration table. And he did all, and, but we had samples. We were sitting at our own tables and we had samples that we were eating from. But we didn't have the full meal deal. We didn't have lamb prepared, for example. So it was kind of a limited thing. I like it to, when we do this again, now that we've got a larger space and a full dining room and kitchen and everything, I like to do the full meal deal, the whole shebang. Admittedly, this is their busy time of year. <laughs> so maybe we can get Arnold to come do this for us in the off season. Okay? Typically, you've got to book him quite a bit in advance to get him in his availability. All right. Let me read. Like I say, we're bumping up against the time of this. It's called a Passover Haggadah for Jewish believers. Compiled by Arnold Fruchtenbaum and uh, part of Ariel Ministries. Originally written in 1970. He's got several introductions in here. The original introduction, the introduction to the second edition, introduction to the third edition, to the fourth edition. 20 years have passed since the first edition. Um, I think that's the last one, written in 1991. He gives a full uh, list of things you've got to purchase or have available for you uh, for this particular night. And uh, the different items, pillows, chairs, food items. Roasted egg, chopped liver, gefilte fish, kosher pickles, matzah ball and chicken soup. Lamb. Interesting, he says, though forbidden in Judaism due to cessation of the sacrificial system for Jewish believers, this restriction is no longer valid. Since Messiah, the Lamb of God, is the final sacrifice, the lamb should be roasted. And so he recommends roasted lamb for the actual meal. Coffee, tea, and non-dairy creamer. I, I have... I've, I've read Leviticus several times, and um, it's probably beyond my Hebrew skills to uh, identify exactly what phrase in Leviticus we have non-dairy creamer. All right. How to set up the table settings. And uh, not only do they have all the instructions in here, but uh, they will email you with a complete step-by-step procedure on how to how to uh, how to do this, and then uh, come and make sure everything is is set up properly before he begins. Here's the different uh, elements: kindling of the candles, the first cup, the cup of blessing. Let me stretch this out. We'll read the table of contents, and then we'll uh, follow up next week. Kindling of the candles. Who does that? The mama or the papa? First cup, I've I got to watch Fiddler on the Roof again. I'm, I'm kinda <laughs> first cup, the cup of blessing, uh, the first washing of the hands, the dipping of the parsley, breaking of the middle matzah, the four questions, the telling of the story of the Passover, the second cup, the cup of plagues, the second washing of the hands, the eating of the bitter herbs, uh, eating of the bitter herbs with the charoseth, uh, the uh, Passover supper itself, eating of the afikomen, then the third cup, the cup of redemption, then the fourth cup, the cup of praise, and then uh, he has the uh, communion service as recorded in the gospel record. And that, that was not a part of Jewish Passover, but it's what he has added to it in, in teaching this for a Jewish background of, of believers. Remembrance of me, the communion, and then the departure service is complete. Even a recipe for Haroseth. How about that? All right. Well, we're out of time. Let's uh, pick up on this next week. And then... Uh, and then we need to do some homework on what is this new covenant. This, blood, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for many. Do this in remembrance of me. What is the new covenant? How does the church relate to the new covenant? And um, we'll answer it as best as we can. And I'll also share, I think, some of the bad ways that other groups answer it. And, uh, and, and take it from there. All right. Questions? Yes, ma'am. You're right. I'm not here next week. Thank you. So two weeks from today. In our next class, in our next class, thank you. I will be in Houston next week for Schaefer. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am? So when Jesus said he wouldn't drink the wine, like he was like, well, that's the blood, and he would not drink after the blood, that's 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 the blood, that
And when he is seated, yes, there will be a lot of wine in the millennial kingdom. Right, 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 right. The wedding supper. Oh, I bet you he will. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Which you say, well, big deal. It's just tonight. You're going to the cross tomorrow. Well, it's also the 40 days of resurrection ministry. It's also uh, the entirety of the church age until the conclusion of the church age. Yeah. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that you would continue to humble us, to search the scriptures diligently to see if these things are so, that we might make proper application, Father, of every jot and every tittle in our stewardship. Uh, Father, continue to be at work. and We might not ever lose sight of the reality. Do not allow us, Father, to become consumed with rituals and external observances and phony uh, churchianity, Father, which is nothing but... Um, appearances and externals and and uh, legalism father um, open our eyes to the reality that we might live that reality day by day moment by moment for the glory of your son in whose name we pray amen